Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers. It's another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. This is the story of wrestling in America, as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Let's step back into the ring and back into time. We get wall-to-wall, treetop tall, with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. So, Ron, what about the rain? You getting a lot of rain in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee? What's going on? Oh yeah, get some nasty weather, man. The last few days, uh, fifty mile an hour, fifty, sixty mile an hour wow. winds. Uh, wow. Uh, uh, but at least it doesn't have a tornado connected to it. Man, they've been all around us. That's a, that's crazy. It seems like that when they say April showers bring May flowers. Yeah, we're we're getting our half of that, no doubt. Hey, listen, I can't help but jump right in today with a question. When I saw the title for this studcast, this is number 293. 293 of these. Can you believe it? The title wow. is Southeastern Heats Up. I was really surprised. I thought your bookers had turned up the heat in the last studcast. So, so what's it about? How could it be much hotter than the Hulk making somebody bleed from the mouth and an NWA non-sanctioned lights-out match in the Knoxville territory, ending with five more wrestlers in the ring than the two that were even scheduled to be there, Ron? <laughs> well, that's a great question to start out with, Dave. I mean, uh, you know, in my opinion, every booker should turn up the heat, man. Heat always means bigger crowds, and, and that's what you want as an owner. So uh, last studcast, you know, we kind of instantly changed the fans' perception of the Hulk. And uh, in just one Gulf Coast TV match, he went from being, uh, you know, not to, defined as whether he was a baby face or, or a heel, basically, to uh, everybody knew what the story was. And then uh, made it in, a, in this NWA non-section lights-out match you mentioned in the Knoxville territory. Uh, it wasn't the end of that angle. It's just a preview of what was to come, basically. So in this studcast, we're going to definitely turn up the heat, man, uh, in both those territories. Uh, And uh, I'm kind of looking forward to it, my man. You know what, Ron? That's what I love so much about these studcasts. Fans never know what is going to be coming up next. I cannot imagine how you are going to turn up the heat after what the Hulk and Billy Spears did in the last studcast. Billy Spears made Hulk put his bear hug on Roy Lee Welch twice, leading to him bleeding from the mouth. 
And listen, sorry, Stud, but I can't wait to hear the answer to not only this question, but how did someone bleed from the mouth without it badly hurting them? So, hmm, I guess we'll wait for that. Where do we ride first today? Well, man, uh, you're just full of questions today, Dave. You know? <laughs> so, so let's get to one about, let's, let's start out with the one about how somebody bled from the mouth. Uh, since you asked that question last week, and I didn't have time to answer it. So, so uh, obviously, that was something uh, not done very often in any, any territory anywhere. And in fact, I don't think it was ever done in some territories. We only did it because it, it had so much more impact than the normal way that a simple bear hug was used and the results of a simple bear hug. So uh, the bleeding from the mouth type of impact, it, it created much more attention and talk among the fans. Once they see that, they really begin to talk about what happened on TV. It also resulted in the user of the hole getting over much faster and stronger because you know, it was real blood, and uh, and it and it was coming from somewhere rather than the head that uh, happened in normal matches. So, uh, you know, we're going to get into this, Dave. But, you know, it may be a little bit uncomfortable for some people to hear it. So, <laughs> I'm going to try to soften this man as much as I can. Uh, so, what we did, blood was removed from the arm of a wrestler, uh, the same one that. Uh, is going to be bleeding. Wow. Uh, used a syringe in the same way a doctor would in a doctor's office. Wow. When you go to get a blood test. And uh, then that blood was shot into a condom. And then uh, when it was time to use it, the wrestler put, put it in his mouth. And when the time came for the blood to be released from his mouth, he bit down on it uh, until it broke. And then the, when the blood ran out, uh, he let it run out of his mouth. Okay, so it's basically like a very small water balloon, except it's a condom with blood in it. I mean, right? That's it, my okay. man. That's it. Okay, listen, I knew you guys were nuts and did some horrible things to yourselves for the fans, but this is ridiculous. So how did wrestlers breathe during their match with something like that in their mouth, and what if they accidentally swallowed it? Man, I didn't say it was easy or simple <laughs> or not dangerous, you know. I mean, I definitely didn't uh, didn't say that. So that why that you know that's basically why it wasn't done very often, and why it had so much impact when it was done. So it got the wrestler, the one using the bear hug or whatever move, over right away, and instead of it taking months mm -hmm. for him to get uh, over to where he's drawing money. Uh, it happened real quick usually, and it also made him look much more believable after it was done than otherwise, obviously. <laughs> That's crazy, but it gives me, I guess you say it gives me even more respect for how far your guys went to make it real. Well, I can tell you this, Dave, it was a heck of a lot less painful than what the old timers call getting the hard way. You know, that, that yeah. was something, yeah. uh, you know, that was letting somebody basically bust your eye. Uh, hit you in the head or just black your eye on purpose with a shooting punch. And my father and my grandfather did it often back in their day. And so most times uh, they didn't get stitches, you know, uh, uh, and the black eye, uh, you know. But uh, sometimes 
for a week or more after a match, they looked like they'd been in a car wreck. It just depended on how many shots they took, right? <laughs> and uh, walking around like that, though, was great advertising for the sport, man, that uh, that it was real. Yeah. yeah. So uh, back in my grandfather's day in the 1930s and 40s and my father's days in the 1950s and 60s when dad was running the same Gulf Coast territory that we're in talking about today, he paid wrestlers $25 each per match each time they allowed somebody to bust them open the hard way. And uh, he had a top heel named Mario Galento that uh, during that time would sometimes collect an extra $150 at the end of the week. And uh, besides oh getting themselves God. busted Are you uh, six times and out of seven days, wow. you know, he, he rarely ever got the cuts sewn up. And when he did, he didn't let him use the Novocaine on him to kill the pain. God, let me get the let me get this straight. You said, and I've seen pictures of Mario, so I know what you're talking about. Mario Galento would get hit with a punch that busted him open as many as six times a week. So now I know you guys are definitely crazier than I thought. I've heard I've heard of plenty, Stud. So thanks. Thanks for that. All right. Sorry. I'm sorry I even asked about the bleeding of the mouth part. You guys were totally nuts, especially back in the day. So where do we ride first? I hope I don't get a hard way going there, however we get there. <laughs> don't worry, Dave. I'm not going to bust you, man. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks. So, so we got off you know, on a very serious subject here today, but... We might as well stay, man, in the southeastern Gulf Coast, since that's where we're basically talking about here. And uh, since uh, we've already started there today, so we're going to take a look, man, at the card of the week, uh, the TV show. That will, again, be a nasty one. The results of the card and the attendances of the three major markets uh, that's going to be getting that card. We'll cover all that. Then we're going to head north, man, into southeastern Knoxville's territory. And they had a great card there, too. Uh, with another big TV show promoting it. And we'll talk about the results of the card and the attendance there. And uh, and hopefully, man, we're going to finally get to a learning tree question today. Uh, you know, we still got a whole lot to cover, but uh, I'm, I'm real hopeful we can do it today. Okay, well, it definitely sounds like another loaded stud cast. I know that Southeastern Gulf Coast card in Mobile on Wednesday April 11th, 1979, is the one we're going to be talking about today. So who was on that card? Well, it opened up, man, with uh, Ben Alexander, new guy that hadn't been there but a couple of weeks, against Herb Calvert. And uh, Calvert was still uh, taking on challenges from the audience. And then he was going to wrestle Ben Alexander afterward. Uh, he'd been doing that for quite a while. Uh, second match was Burhead Jones taking on punk rock Wayne Ferris. Going to be uh, eventually the honky-tonk man. Armand Hussein wrestled the gladiator, managed by Billy Spears. And the Hulk, who was really fast moving up the card at this point, uh, after what he had done, especially to Roy Lee on the TV from last week. And uh, my guy, uh, my being the guy that saved Roy uh, last week on that TV match, I was going to be the guy that's going to be facing the Hulk. Uh, for the first time, hmm. uh, and the Hulk is at this point managed by a new manager, uh, his first manager, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, Billy Spears. And uh, so the Southeastern champion, David Schultz, going to be giving Norvell Austin his last shot at the belt, and if he didn't win it, 
He wasn't going to get any more chances of being a Southeastern champion, especially not until Schultz lost the belt to somebody else. Uh, the last match was for even higher stakes than that. Rip Tyler and Eddie Sullivan, uh, the Southeastern tag champions, they were also managed by Billy Spears. They were uh, giving the team that kept trying to capture their belts, Ricky Fields and Terry Latham, their last chance to win the belts. Uh, with uh, something even more dangerous added to it than that by Billy Spears, it's going to happen on the TV show. Mm. All right, that's a great card right there. So I can't wait to hear what crazy idea Spears had in mind on the TV show. Oh, man, well, we know how Billy works. So uh, well, let's show just about everything on him, man, everything you could imagine on this TV show. It was, it was really loaded, Dave. It opened up with Charlie Platt and Billy Spears, and he had his Southeastern Tag Champions, Tyler and Sullivan, at the set with him. They were standing behind him. Uh, Ricky Fields and Terry Latham were in the ring for the first match, and uh, once the match got started, Billy Spears uh, began to uh, tell <laughs> tell the Charlie about his big news this week. He seemed to have a lot of big news going on, man, every week, so... Uh, during that first Fields and Lathan tag match on the show, Spears wanted to add something more final to his team's upcoming title defense against the young punks, as he calls Spears and Lathan. Uh, that uh, I mean, as he called uh, Fields and Lathan, uh, mm-hmm. that were in the ring and uh, they were taking care of business as he was doing all this talking. And he said right off the top that his mama obviously hated those punks. And she ordered him to demand to add something to the upcoming tag match that probably should have been done long ago, he said. And in addition to it being the Young Punk's last shot at the title, he suggested why didn't Southeastern up the ante and make it a bigger, bigger event, Uh, like having the man that loses the match to have to leave Southeastern. So... Charlie was shocked. You know, he asked Spears if he realized that if his team lost, uh, they would not only lose the belt, but his team would be finished as well, you know. So Spears told Charlie his mama and him has always been big gamblers, and that's why they were rich, because they didn't mind putting it all on the line. And he told Charlie, uh, all you need to do, Charlie Platt, is to get an answer for me and my mama. And uh, so his team standing behind him, they obviously didn't have any idea what he was going to ask them to add to the match, you know. So so they let everybody know right away, man. uh, They just exploded by him. Like, what did you say? What do you want him to do? You know, so uh, Mm -hmm. Spears got up and he started to all leave the set and they went running off behind him, screaming at him like, wait a minute here. You know, what's wrong with you, man? His mama, his poor old mama, she must have really hated the Fields and Latham team. This was a real gamble. Spears and his team would only lose their belts if they lost. This loser leaves idea could cost Spears not just the tag belts, but his team. So knowing Spears, there has to be more to this story. So what did Fields and Latham say about this after their TV match? Well, after the two boys won, man, and uh, they went for the first interview of the show, and, and Charlie explained to them what had been asked and how did they feel about that. 
well, they were all for it, you know. They said, "Hey, uh, uh, in for a penny, let's get in for a pound, man. Let's uh, let's see what we can do." And uh, you know, so they they liked the idea that the loser of the match was going to be East Southeastern, and uh, they felt like they were going to win it and they were going to be the new champions, and they wouldn't ever have to deal with Spears and his team anymore. So you know, uh, uh, then Schultz was in the second match. Uh, Norvell Austin, on second match on the show, Norvell Austin was at the set this time with Charlie because he's going to be wrestling against Schultz. Gives him an opportunity to, to tell people what he was thinking about that match. And their upcoming match was another championship match. But this time, obviously, it was Norvell's last chance to win the belt. So Schultz pounded his opponent. He sees Norvell sitting there. You know, the studio is fairly small. He's sitting right there close to the ring. And, uh, and boy, he was even more vicious than usual. And, and because Austin was sitting at the set, he took every time he did something nasty to the guy, he would point to Norvell, you know, and, and make it personal. He would yell at him, this is you, daddy. <laughs> Get ready. This is what I'm going to do to you, Norvell. So mm. that uh, ended up being a pretty darn different type of match. And, uh, and Schultz was at this point, uh, wow, he was really coming into his own. A personality profile on this one was it was with somebody who had never been on a Southeastern TV show before. And it was one of my family members. Uh, actually, it was the father of Roy Lee Welch, the wrestler that had been bleeding from the mouth in the last studcast. So Lester comes to the show, man. Uh, and uh, so we put him on the personality profile. And uh, Lester was a great guy. He had a magnetic personality. He was very soft-spoken. And uh, actually, he was a former rodeo star before starting his career as a wrestler. And uh, and in this territory, uh, he wrestled in this territory in the 1950s, the same Gulf Coast territory back in the 1950s. And uh, obviously, you know, he had a great conversation with Charlie, and he said he was there to represent the Welch family, and he wanted to see exactly what had happened to his son last week. So he and Charlie watched uh, the the video, the replay of the TV match with Roy and the Hulk from the week before. And when it got down to the part where Roy was bleeding, uh, Lester was but just about, he was about in tears. I mean, he... He was really taking this hard. And at the end of the video, you know, he thanked me because I was the one that came in and kind of stopped things and uh, mm-hmm. got the Hulk and them out of the ring. And he thanked me for coming in the ring and for stopping things at that point. And although we didn't say I was a Welch, it was kind of a good tie in with the family without saying I was a Welch. You know, he yeah. he, he was complimentary of me. And uh, so uh, ended up being a great profile. That was so unusual to have a wrestler's father as a guest on a personality profile. So, but I'm, I'm sure watching that was difficult for Roy's father. Oh man, well it certainly was, man. Uh, you know, he was great. Lester was a great guy. He dearly loved his sons. He had two sons, Roy, and another son, a little older one named Jack. And uh, he said to him uh, uh, that, you know, that one of the con- things that uh, Lester had said during the profile is he said it looked like Spears was more responsible for what happened than the big man that did it. He didn't even mention the dog's name. And he told everybody that he had a couple of run-ins 
Lester said that he had had a couple of run-ins with the young Billy Spears a year ago in that same part of the country. So basically, Spears been around for a long time, you know, and he was at one time a wrestler. Mm-hmm. And, he, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, Lester probably, and Lester was a little older. So, you know, Spears, uh, Spears and Lester might have had a few, uh, few problems back in the day. Mm-hmm. And he said when Spears was a... And he said, we had a run-in or two uh, when Spears was a young folk, he told Charlie. Mm-hmm. Just like he called the two wrestlers in their first match, you know. Uh, Spears was a young punk, believe me. And the uh, studio popped on that one. And uh, he said Roy was going to be all right. And he would probably be back in the ring very soon. And when Charlie closed out the profile, Lester got a big hand from the studio audience. Wow. All right, so you got the makings for a really good TV show. So what was next? Well, the Gladiator was up next. He was managed by Billy Spears as well. And uh, Spears was in the ring with him, started the match, and he got him fired up and turned him loose. And for the first time, fans began to see another side of the Gladiator, Dick Steinborn. And, uh, you know, Dick was a great wrestler, but, uh, you know, in this match, Spears turned him around like he was turning the Hulk around to be more vicious and uh, Spears, uh, you know, and, and uh, Steinborn just became to punish man, pound and punish his opponent rather than wrestle like he had done in most matches. Uh, during the course of this match, Spears came to the set again and he grabbed the microphone and he asked Charlie who invited the, the fake cowboy Lester Welch on the show, right? So he had to make his comments. And uh, so then, you know, he said, uh, you know, he didn't like being insulted by by anybody and he says my mama's going to be very angry when she sees this about what he said about me and uh he was going to continue on with it but about the time he got really getting into uh, cutting into lester uh his gladiator won the match he used a big nasty pile driver and so he had to run back to the ring and wait, raise his hand so uh he didn't uh, he didn't have the opportunity to say everything he wanted to i don't believe but the last match got a big pop from the crowd, man, uh, before it even started. I hadn't wrestled on the TV there in months and uh, was certainly not expected to be in the ring. So for the first time ever on the upcoming cards, too, I was in the main event in all three of those major cities against the Hulk. And uh, there wasn't much time left in the show at this point, and uh, I was trying to get a quick victory before the show ended. And I drop kicked the guy, and I jerked him up and threw him over my shoulder, ran across the ring, gave him a power slam. And the referee was about to start to count him out, and all of a sudden, here comes the Hulk and Spears into the ring. Now, I'm on top of the guy. Mm-hmm. I don't even see them until they're in the ring. And so the studio exploded and, you know, Hulk stomped me in the back. He picked me up and he got me in a full Nelson and Billy Spears took a wild swing at my head and I bent forward and he hit the Hulk instead. So, so Hulk went down and he wasn't expecting Spears to hit him. And then I got my hands around Spears throat. And all of a sudden, the gladiator. Now, another guy comes into the ring. And uh, so I drop Spears. I see the gladiator coming, and I nail him. And I go down on him, man. And I'm, I'm trying to put his lights out. I was getting him with some good shots. And then, you know, I've got two guys behind my back. I don't see either Hulk or the other, or Spears. And Hulk kicks me in the back, and he picked me up, and he put me in his bear hug, man. Studio was going wild at this point. 
And then of all people that came into the ring was Lester. Hmm. And, uh, you know, when he hit the ring, he went straight to the Hulk and he hit him in the back and the Hulk dropped me and he turned around and he grabbed Lester in the bear hook. So then the gladiator and Spears, uh, they both got me, you know, uh, Hulk, you know, Hulk was strong. Wow. He's unbelievably strong. So, you know, um, when he dropped me, they had plenty of times in to start putting the boots on me and Lester you know, was still in the bear hug from the hog. And uh, for the second time in two weeks, man, uh, somebody was bleeding from the mouth and this, and it was another Welch. Wow. And wow. the blood started running from Lester's mouth and it ran down the Hulk's back. Uh, so I kind of fought my way to my feet and Spears and Gladiator, uh, they took off quick as they could. Uh, I nailed Hulk in the back. He dropped Lester and he headed for the dressing room and, and I had to sit Lester upright cause he was starting to choke man to keep him from choking. And, uh, Blood was still running out of his mouth. The Norvell, uh, Ricky Fields, Terry Latham, Herb Calvert, all those guys came to the ring to kind of help me get Lester out of there. Wow. Absolutely. I mean, wild, Ron. So did all of you guys carry Lester back to the dressing room? Well, all of them except me, Dave. Uh, I went to the set with Charlie. Uh, time was running out on the show, and I wanted to say something about all this. So I verbally tore into Spears and his men, especially the Hulk. And, uh, you know, I said, you know, this big son of a gun, I said, he's been running a rough shot over wrestlers here ever since he came. And, uh, you know, I said, now, man, he's going to be for the first time looking eye to eye at his opponent. Because I'm his size, I'm his height, and I'm darn near his size. And, uh, you know, and I said, uh, he may be an opponent that's uh, famous for squeezing the blood out of wrestlers, but I'm famous for breaking their legs. So uh, the studio, you know, they hadn't stopped screaming since the Hulk and Spears hit the ring. And uh, by this point, they were louder than ever, man. So the show closed out with me screaming uh, to Charlie that uh, Spears and the Hulk, uh, you better get you some crutches because he's going to need them. <laughs> All right. I'm sure those at home were going as crazy as the fans in the studio. So, hey, we've been having some great TV shows for weeks now. But this one has to be the best one yet. So how about Mobile? What happened there five nights later? Well, Herb Calvert beat another challenger in Mobile. I mean, uh, there weren't challengers in many cities anymore. But uh, Mobile being Mobile, they were still getting to challengers. He still was. So he beat a challenger the first match. And then uh, he took on Ben Alexander. And he took care of Alexander as well. Then Punk Rock, Wayne Ferris, he stopped Burhead Jones uh, for another win for him. The Gladiator, managed by Billy Spears, won his match over Armand Hussein. And then it was time for my match with the Hulk. And uh, after we were watching, after the fans in Mobile watching that TV show, uh, that Mobile crowd was electric. I mean, wow, it didn't didn't they did they were already fired up before they rang the bell for the match. So then Hulk and uh, Spears, uh, they had tremendous heat, man. Uh, after both Lester and Roy had been bleeding from the mouth, two straight TVs in a row, this match was so easy. Gosh, the crowd was on its feet for every bit of it. And it didn't last long before I got my toehold on him, man, on the Hulk. And uh, <laughs> the roof came off the old Expo Hall. Uh, and Spears charged man into the ring. 
too intentionally get his man disqualified, but he also wanted to get me off his leg before I could do some real damage to him. Uh, so I got back up and, uh, and I backed Billy into a corner and I started to work on his butt, man. And, uh, and here comes the gladiator, kind of like on TV, out of nowhere again. And then the Hulk nails me from behind. Uh, and uh, they all three start working on me. So as mobile crowds did, man, when something like this happened, all of a sudden the building's sitting in their seats and it seemed like all of a sudden you couldn't step out of the ring. The whole crowd came to the ring. Wow. And, uh, and I, and then thank goodness, uh, out of nowhere, here comes Roy Lee. Uh, and Roy Lee had been in the dressing room all night. Nobody was in, knew he was even in the building. Mm-hmm. And, uh, wow. When he got in the ring and he started uh, to help me out, it was total mayhem at that point. So I fought my way up with the Roy and the, and the heels. All three of those guys hit the floor. Uh, and uh, boy, the police were so good. They were so accustomed to what the problems we had in Mobile that as soon as these guys hit the floor, they surrounded them and they fought their way, as usual, back to the dressing room. <laughs> Man, what a great match for Mobile fans. And that was, I believe, this is crazy, only the Hulks fourth match in Mobile. All right, so did you do the same thing in Montgomery and Dothan that week? Well, you're right about that being the fourth match, Dave, and uh, that's crazy. You know, they they had amazing heat, man, to, to only been there four times. So as far as the other two markets, no, we didn't do the same thing in those other markets. We taped this Mobile match. We were going to use it on the TV the following Saturday. And the other two markets, they got totally different matches than what happened in Mobile, especially this match. Uh, But every building in the territory uh, that we went to, man, and I wrestled Hulk, uh, then this is going to be over a period of weeks at this point. Uh, They all got into the matches. No matter what the finish was, they were really into me and the Hulk going at it. Wow. So what happened in the other two important matches? Well, in the Southeastern title match, uh, David Schultz uh, successfully defended his belt uh, by disqualification. He didn't have to beat Norville. Norville had to beat him. And uh, and obviously, uh, it wasn't going to give Norville another chance of getting the title. But it wasn't going to be their last match either. And then in the Southeastern tag title match, the last chance for Ricky Fields and Terry Latham to win the belts from Sullivan and Rip Tyler, managed by Spears. Uh, and then they had this new added stipulation to it that uh, not only uh, would Fields and Latham never get another championship match, but whoever lost this match was going to have to leave the Southeast. So the fans ended their evening, man, on a high note. Uh, Ricky Fields and Terry Latham, they beat Rip Tyler. He was the guy that lost the match. And uh, it meant that they not only won the belt, but they had split up the team, Billy Spears Championship Tag Team, mm-hmm. and they ended the run of the former champions. It was the first time Rip Tyler uh, would uh, – it was the very last time Rip Tyler would ever wrestle in Southeastern. Okay, yeah. So what – Man, that's a big night for the fans. So how about the attendance in all three of the major markets? Well, business jumped big time again, man. 
I mean, uh, Montgomery went from 2,800 the week before to 3,500. Dothan went from 3,000 up close to, to 4,000 to 3,700. And Mobile sold out Expo Hall. Uh, had more than 5,000. It was the first time since Harley Race, almost two months earlier, uh, that uh, we had uh, put more than uh, 5,000 people in, a, in that building in Mobile. Wow. What a first half to this stud cast, Ryan. It sounds like Southeastern Gulf Coast was starting to catch on fire again. I can't wait to hear what was going on 500 miles north in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I tell you what, we will find out when we come back right after our break. This stud cast will continue right here. Hey, Studcast fans, Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel is on fire. Now, with a record 250-plus videos there, it's the gateway to ClassicContinentalWrestling.com, where you find more great old-school classic matches and Gulf Coast, Southeastern Continental, and USA TV shows than any streaming channel on the planet, plus documentaries, stars of the sport, superstars of the past, and fan-favorite short rides with the stud there's nothing like it anywhere that's classiccontinentalwrestling.com only $4.99 monthly or $39.99 per year with a one-week free trial still available subscribe now and ride into wrestling history all right studcast fans welcome back in episode number 293 southeastern heats up so ron we are riding now into southeastern knoxville and did they follow in knoxville what happened in the Gulf Coast in the same week? Well, you know, I mean, if you mean, did were they as good or <laughs> I guess we'll find out, Dave. Right. You know, <laughs> we're going to find out, uh, you know, if the Knoxville booker, basically, we got two bookers, one in the north, one in the south. We're going to find out if the Knoxville booker, Bob Roop, uh, is going to be able to keep pace with what the Gulf Coast booker, Louis Tillette, was doing. Uh, we've just talked about what Louie uh, managed to get done. So to do that, everyone knows uh, what just happened in the Gulf Coast. We just talked about that. And uh, so we're in the second week of April, 1979. So let's give everybody the Knoxville card. This one was in the Coliseum. It was on a Friday the 13th of April, 1979. And after this card, uh, we'll be less than two months away from the beginning of the Knoxville War. Okay, so I had no idea that we were this close to the Knoxville War. I doubt you have any idea what was going on behind the scenes with your booker Bob Roop and his conversations, if any, at this point, with the Knoxville wrestlers. Well, I certainly didn't, my man. Hmm. Uh, you know, I had no idea what was happening. Uh, and uh, I, <laughs> I was about to be involved in a train wreck, man, and I did not see it coming. So, And you know the old saying, man, hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, so when doing my research for this episode, which I do for every episode, I go back to TVs and uh, matches uh, and what uh, as much information about what happened as I possibly can. When looking back on this episode, I just happened to look ahead like the next five Knoxville cards before the war started. And, uh, and I s began to see many things on these cards that made absolutely no sense. Or maybe because of what was going on, I didn't know about it, or maybe it made a heck of a lot of sense. So I was not booked on any of the Knoxville cards 
uh, from the one that we're talking about here and this show all the way for the next five weeks after that, uh, which means I'm totally out of Knoxville. I'm not there, not seen by any of the boys and the crew, uh, nobody. And I was wrestling, obviously, against the Hulk. And uh, just about every one of these five weeks, for cards about five weeks in a row, and spending almost all of my time down there in the Gulf Coast Territory, uh, trying to basically help the Hulk improve as a, as a wrestler as fast as possible because we, he was getting over so good. We were mm-hmm. going to push him as much as we could. Wow. And uh, obviously, if he got over good, that's going to help the territory to start growing again. You know, we were kind of down here. We lost all those guys to Memphis. And uh, the Hulk single-handedly uh, with me and uh, some really good workers are going to be able to try to bring this back. So think about it. You know, it was probably the perfect time for Bob Roop to lay the foundations for him and the four other guys that are going to uh, try to take over southeastern Knoxville, take over the territory. Uh, I'm not there at all. I have no influence. People don't see me. It's kind of like sometimes your crew would believe, well, he don't care about this territory. Mm. Uh, Be pretty easy to sell that to him. So it sounds like it would be a very good time for something like that to happen. So uh, really fascinating stuff here, Stud. Wrestling history in the making, no doubt. So you brought up this card, and you're not being on it. So who was on it? Ted Allen. Uh, open this one up against uh, big Tony Peters out of uh, the Johnson City area up there, the Tri-Cities. Uh, they had the first match on the card. Then there was two Bayliner boat tournament matches on this one. A Crusher Blackwell, who couldn't wrestle against Malenko, Roop, or Orton without a mask, but he could wrestle to anybody else he wanted to without a mask. So uh, Blackwell was uh, facing Terry Gibbs in the Bayliner boat elimination match. And then uh, Mr. Fuji, managed by Ron Wright, was taking on Dennis Hall in the second uh, Bayliner match. Then for only the second time, a Southeastern Tag Championship uh, between the champions, Bob Roop and Bob Orton Jr. Uh, against Kevin Sullivan and Dean Ho. They were only, this was only the second time they were wrestling against each other. And this match had not won. This is one of the things I noticed when I was looking ahead at the cards. This match had not one but two referees in it. And when I saw this card, it kind of instantly struck me how strange that was, you know, to book a two-referee match between two teams that had only wrestled each other one time ever before. And uh, and that match, the first time they ever wrestled each other, was just was two weeks ago. Not the week before, but two weeks ago. All right. You're right. I mean, that was kind of odd. Uh, usually you see several matches between two rival teams before they have two referees. Well, let's take that to, to another notch, Dave, uh, when you think about it. Not only was it just the second time they wrestled, but it was going to be the last time these two teams wrestled each other ever in Southeast. Okay. So this conversation get, gets more interesting by the minute. How can you explain that and who was in the main event on this one? Well, I can't explain to booking two referees on just a second match <laughs> right. between, between two teams that's never going to wrestle again. I mean, there's no explanation for that. And I also, uh, you know, can't explain the schedule Ronnie Garvin 
versus the great Malenko main event uh, that uh, there wasn't even a belt on the, this was the main event and there wasn't even Ronnie's belt on the line. It was just uh, Garvin against Malenko. Mm, are you kidding? I mean, okay. All right. Well, what was on the TV show? Well, Les and I had a long conversation about this TV show uh, since I was in the Gulf Coast Territory that day. And uh, he said the main event was going to change on the TV show. Uh, it was originally booked as a regular match between Ronnie Garvin, like I said, and the great Malenko. And he said the show opened with the great Malenko. Uh, uh, they were sitting with him, uh, and they showed the video from the night before where so many wrestlers had gotten into the lights-out match gotten into the ring between Malenko and the Canadian Bumblebee. And, uh, you know, uh, he said uh, Malenko was extremely upset, man. He said uh, Malenko said it in one reason. You know, he said it's because everybody knew this Canadian Bumblebee was undoubtedly Jerry Blackwell, and they still allowed him to <laughs> wrestle me in spite of the signed contract by Blackwell that he would never wrestle against me, Bob Roop, or Bob Orton Jr. And then he bragged because of the fact, uh, you know, he said, I've got my attorneys working on it right now, and they're going to quickly end Blackwell's career because he broke this contract. So uh, Les said, you know, Ronnie, the, I got a little bit uh, carried away, and he said, I stopped him and said, you know, and I bet the second reason is because you lost. <laughs> and Les said the studio popped. Right? So then, well, then Les had a little thing going, and then yeah. he just he said, well, and then he said, Brad, I threw this one. And he said, I said, uh, he said, I told him, uh, I asked him, I said, and your attorneys are going to have a hard time winning your case because <laughs> you didn't wrestle against Crusher Blackwell. You wrestled against the Canadian Bumblebee. Yeah, duh. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when the studio crowd popped again, man. And uh, Malenko, he said, went berserk, you know, and he started screaming, this is all the fault of Ronnie Garvin. He goes, the, the loss the night before and the appearance of Blackwell under a mask. He asked Les, why would Blackwell have a name like the Canadian Bumblebee if he wasn't, if, uh, if Ronnie Garvin wasn't behind all of this? So Les answered again. He says, well, maybe it's because you and Roop and Orton have lied to Blackwell about everything, and now you're trying to ruin his life. <laughs> so <laughs> Les is having a good time out there. Malenko's not doing so well. <laughs> so, uh, so Les, I said the studio popped again. Malenko instantly changed his subject. And he asked Les why he was having to wrestle Garvin when it was not even at least a championship match. And, you know, he said he, he said he refused to get in the ring with Garvin again if it was not at least for a chance to win the belt back. You know, so, and he had a little point there, you know, what is this match all about? And I, I don't have a chance to win the belt. So Garvin comes out to the set right away, brings the belt. And uh, he says, uh, you know, he came. He said, uh, "You know, Les got up as soon as he saw Garvin come because him and Malenko are going to be face to face." And he kind of got between the two of them. And he said, uh, "Garvin uh, would." Garvin told everybody, "He said, I'll put up the belt against you, Malenko." He says, "I only want you to do one thing, and uh, and I'll give you a chance to win the title back." And he says, "I want you to to uh, wrestle what I've got in a box." 
for five minutes. And uh, so Malenko <laughs> demanded, he says, show me the box. What are you talking about? What kind mm-hmm. of box are you talking about? And Garvin said, you know, I don't have it with me, you know, but he says, if you don't agree to the match between uh, between me and you uh, uh, and then to wrestle my box, then uh, then I'm not going to give you a chance to shot, a shot at the belt, you know. And uh, so, so he said uh, – he goes, but uh, you know, I'll then I'll just get the the pleasure of kicking your butt for no reason. <laughs> and the, so the studio popped again, and uh, Malenko looked at them and he screamed, uh, "I'll do it uh, to get my belt back. I'll do it. I'll wrestle whatever you got." Mm. So uh, Ronnie Garvin went straight to the ring. Uh, he was in the first TV match, and uh, the studio crowd was still celebrating that whole segment. I mean, uh, Malenko had been torn up. And uh, then uh, uh, Ronnie gave everybody, man, the normal deal. He jumped off the top rope in another guy's throat. And uh, so then uh, Mr. Fuji, who was now presented by Ron Wright, not managed by him, but just like he did with uh, Condry and Hickerson, now he he's presenting Mr. Fuji. Uh, he won the second match when uh, Pat went on in the Bayliner tournament. Uh, then the personality profile uh, was an update of the Bayliner cabin cruiser match. And, uh, you know, then uh, exactly, it was a, an update of the entire tournament, man. And we talked about who had won, who had moved on, who hadn't. And uh, for the second time, uh, we did this one from the boat itself. Les took another film crew out there from the TV station. Mm-hmm. They went out on the beautiful Norris Lake, north of Knoxville, and did the profile from there. Uh, obviously, they recorded it, and they played it back in the show. Uh, the boat we had taken as, when this tournament started at every one of these events, we parked the boat in the Coliseum, in the back of the Coliseum, uh, had a spotlight on it. We set it just inside the huge black curtain at the back of the building uh, so the fans could go and see it. We cordoned it off with these velvet ropes that uh, everyone, so everybody could get up close and get a real good look at the boat, but not too close to where they were hands all over it and climbing all over it. Yeah. But uh, we basically exhibited the boat the same way we had with cars when they were given away. Right. And the boat tournament kind of involved most of the earlier matches. To, it, and it, what it did, uh, all these b- tournament matches were in the early matches, and that put more interest and emphasis on open matches than what would have normally been there because the winners moved on in the tournament and the losers got eliminated. Mm. I bet that boat, and listen, that boat in its day, this thing was a big deal, but I bet it looked beautiful sitting at the back of that huge coliseum, probably surrounded by fans. You kids get down off that boat. So what was the biggest prize you ever gave away at an event? Was it the boat? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, but like most everything else, man, that year, especially when it came to the Knoxville territory, mm-hmm. even the boat tournament is going to be in the middle of all this the war. So it didn't go down as expected. So, uh, so the next TV match was Kevin Sullivan and Dean Ho, who was from Hawaii, uh, they got a big win before their Southeastern Tag Championship match. The one with two referees the following Friday night against, uh, obviously, Root and Norton Jr. And uh, the Malenko was in the last match of the day. 
And uh, while he went in, and uh, as he had been doing every time he got a chance on TV in the ring, he stomped, uh, you know, he just stomped his way to victory, basically. Started at a guy's feet, and he worked his way around his entire body. He stomped his legs, his arms, his head, every part of a body of his body that he could. And when he finished making the circle, he finally uh, pinned the guy. And uh, so as the referee was counting Malenko's opponent out, Garvin slid into the ring behind the Russian. <laughs> Malenko didn't know he was even in the ring. And when the referee counted three, Malenko jumped up. You know, uh, and then got his hand raised, you know, but he didn't know Garvin standing there behind him. And so when he turned around to leave the ring, Garvin hit him in the mouth, man, with one of those fist of stone punches that Whoa. Ronnie was famous for. Wow. And uh, Malenko's body went one way and his false teeth went the other. Did they? <laughs> they landed on <laughs> Garvin's feet, knocked his false teeth. So Les said the studio exploded in laughter. Right? Oh my God. And he said Malenko got up and he had his back turned to Ronnie and he was feeling in his mouth for his teeth. What, what happened? And then when he turned around, he saw Garvin. And uh, so <laughs> and he saw his teeth laying there and he started to reach for him and Garvin stomped his false teeth. Oh my God. <laughs> and then they flew into hundreds of pieces, Les said. Flew all over the mat. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. then Garvin left the ring, and there was <laughs> Malenko trying to pick up pieces of teeth. <laughs> and then there was another explosion of laughter. Are you kidding, Rod? That is crazy. That is an incredible way to end a TV show. So Gar Garvin shattered his false teeth. I can't believe Bob Roop. Came up with that one, or did he? Oh, well, to be quite honest <laughs> with you, Dave, uh, it was the first time that a Southeastern fan had seen anything like that. That was for sure. But the uh, original angle, man, in which that happened, happened years earlier in Florida between Eddie Graham and the great Malenko. And Bob Roop had been wrestling down there for 10 years. He had obviously heard about it. And uh, I think that's where he got the idea from, obviously. <laughs> I should have known. I think this was a really good TV show, but it didn't have near the heat that happened on Southeast Gulf, Southeastern Gulf Coast TV show. And the Canadian Bumblebee, Bumblebee was not even on the Knoxville TV show. So what happened the next Friday night? Well, the Canadian Bumblebee uh, not being on the show, that kind of spoke volumes for, for something, uh, you know, that something just wasn't right on this particular card and on this particular TV show. Uh, I didn't start putting the pieces together, you know, because uh, uh, there was been no reason for it. And besides that, I wasn't even there to see this stuff. But, you know, that's crazy. Uh, the Canadian Bumblebee is the hottest guy in the territory, and he's not even seen on the TV show. So mm -hmm. there's something going on. So in the first match of the following Friday night, uh, Ted Allen, uh, who was – who trained Arn Anderson, man, uh, years later, beat Tony Peters. Then uh, uh, the Canadian Bumblebee, uh, you know, uh, he's, he, uh, the fact he was on there uh, really spoke volumes, man, to, to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, but he, in his match, 
he beat uh, Terry Gibbs, and he wrestled as Crusher Blackwell. Mm-hmm. He did not uh, wasn't seen as the Canadian Bumblebee. Oh, and uh, and in the second the uh, Bayliner boat match, uh, Mister Fuji, presented by Ron Wright, won over Dennis Hall. And uh, then Bob Roop and Bob Orton Jr. successfully defend their belts over Kevin Sullivan and Dino with the two referees involved in the match. And then Ronnie Garvin's deal stole the show, Les says, you know, with his box that Malenko had agreed to wrestle the contents of for at least five minutes before he started his Southeastern title match with Garvin. He was going to get the championship match, but he had to spend the first five minutes with Garvin's box. So with uh, Garvin and Malenko both in the ring, uh, they went to the ring. Uh, Garvin took the microphone from the announcer and he turned to the back of the Coliseum and he, he called out for them to bring in the box, right? So house lights went down on the building, a spotlight came on in the center of that huge black curtain where it opened up the back of the Coliseum. And uh, suddenly when that... Uh, Curtain opened a big forklift, man, with a giant wooden box on it, already raised up into the air, slowly made its way down to the ring. And uh, Les told me the next day uh, there was a tremendous roar from the crowd (laughs) about this big box. Nobody knew what the hell was in it. Uh, And it was being uh, hauled down to the ring. And then when the forklift arrived at the ring, it lowered the huge box over and set it down inside the ring. Then uh, Malenko said, tried to leave the ring. And the two referees that were in the tag match both stopped him. They wouldn't let him go back to the dressing room. And uh, then somebody uh, in the, in the, then the uh, auditorium crew handed Garvin a crowbar. And he went over and took the cover off the box with the crowbar. And then uh, Malenko grabbed the microphone and he told Garvin, he said, I don't want the belt. <laughs> he said, I don't want it. I'm just wanting to leave the ring. I'm just wanting to go back to the dressing room. <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> somebody handed Garvin the uh, microphone, and Les said he told Boris, you know, uh, he'd go back to the dressing room, but not before he took on what was in the box for at least five minutes. <laughs> so according to Les, he said the Coliseum roared, man. And he, he said to, to him, the giant box, uh, it might have been the best part of the night. I said, it's like, oh, this was, this was really getting over. So then Garvin got out of the ring, and uh, he left Malenko in the ring with the box. And he said Malenko uh, slowly approached the giant box. And, uh, and when he uh, finally got guts enough to lean up and look over the side of it, he said two hands came out and grabbed him and pulled him over in it, right? And, uh, boy, <laughs> then it started. The bell rang, and, uh, boy, the box was just going crazy. <laughs> so he said, said, everybody in the Coliseum was on their feet. He said this. And he said, uh, about uh, two minutes later, after they got quiet in there, he said, the Canadian bumblebee crawled out of the box, and he reached in there, and he drug Malenko out with him. <laughs> and then the door, and then the old bumblebee man, he stung him, man. He hit him with a drop kick and he pinned him in the corner of the ring and he started working on him, man. And the forklift this came the forklift Linda brought the lid the, got the box on it and raised it up and the box was removed from the ring and uh <laughs> that said the crowd never sat down, man, during this entire five minutes. 
And, uh, you know, then he said after the bumblebee started off with the drop kick, he finally uh, he finally beat the hell out of Malenko and put him in the half in the middle of the ring, got up on the top rope. And uh, he said, the bumblebees quashed him, man. <laughs> and then he said, the, that was just about the time the bell rang. Five minutes was over. And he said, the bumblebee rolled out of the ring and went back to the dressing room. And Ronnie Garvin rolled in and walked over and laid down on Blinko and one, two, three. <laughs> All right. I got to ask, as maybe as a side note, uh, tell me about the box. If it was big enough to hold the Canadian bumblebee, and the great Malenko, we're talking more. Are we talking more than a cardboard box? Was it a was oh, it a wooden yeah. we're wooden about box? A wooden box. Okay. Oh yeah, that's that. It was a wooden box, and that's why it had the the. Uh, that's why it had to have the crowbar to get the lid off of it because right. it was nailed down with the bumblebee in it. But so, yeah, he said it was probably us. Six feet by six feet and uh, and five feet high. Or so, whatever. do you remember somebody having this thing specially made for this event? Or was it painted or, or anything like that? Do you recall? Well, there was nothing. I don't think it was painted, but uh, you know, it, it was a special thing for this event. You had to have a box, a big box, yeah, yeah, to get those two guys in there, especially just to get Blackwell in there. Yeah, no doubt. All right, listen, I'd love to have seen that. I'm sure fans were going crazy from the time the box entered the Coliseum until Garvin got the pin over Malenko without lifting a finger, by the way. So how about the attendance for this one? Had to do pretty good. Well, it fell just below the 5,000 mark uh, from the week before. We'd had that big uh, night of champions the week before, and we went back over 5,000, but it dropped only to 4,700. It was basically about 1,000 fans above the crowd in Dothan. It was on the same night. But it was 600 fans less than what was in the Mobile sellout. So, uh, you know, yeah. it was somewhere in the middle of what was going on down there in the, the Gulf Coast territory. All right. So I'm happy to say that we are going to have time. We will have time for a learning tree question today. And this one, Stud, I think you're really going to like it. It is from a very obviously knowledgeable van- fan. His name is Arthur Damascus from San Francisco, California. He says, I'm a huge fan of your stud cast. Never miss one. Saw you wrestle here in the Cow Palace in 1985 and have been a fan since then. I'm aware of Bob Roop's and Roy Shire's horrible history here when Roop tried to steal his territory before he came to Tennessee. But my question is not about Roop. I'm sure that soon in the Studcast, you're going to be wrestling against the young Terry Bollet, known in southeastern Gulf Coast as the Hulk. How important will your first matches with him be toward building his future? Wow, man. Uh, I don't know where you find, guys found this question, Dave. Well, it's a, it's a great one, man. Uh, and while, I mean, the, the guy knows everything about the Shires deal. He knows about Roop's history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. And, uh, and his question is about the Hulk. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, he's covering everything, man. So, uh, well, first of all, Mr. Damascus, uh, and I think that's what it was, uh, I thank you for your compliments and obviously for your support. And uh, and you seem to know quite a lot about uh, what's going on, uh, not just out there, but down in the southeast. And and uh, you're absolutely correct about the importance of the Hulk's first matches. 
especially since he had very limited background in wrestling before he came to Southeastern. He didn't know a lot of wrestling, you know, so so he was lucky to get to start his career as somewhat a babyface. His first few matches, he was neither babyface nor heel, but he was somewhat a babyface. Short matches, all he had to do was put a, you know, a, a bear hug on somebody, basically. But uh, uh, he was really lucky to, to to be a bit of a babyface because as a heel, you had to lead the matches. And, and at this point, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Billy Spears in his corner, Billy had definitely turned him into a heel. Yeah. So, yeah, he needed a lot of help. Yeah. So, so at that point, uh, you know, he he was uh, in his development uh, uh, back in this studcast times, uh, only having had a limited number of matches and basically no experience at all in leading the match. And it was critical that he learned these things as fast as possible. So in all of our early matches, meaning the ones I had against him, uh, I led him. I called the spots. I led the matches uh, like the heel would, but even though I was the baby face. And I called the spots uh, to, to make him look good whenever I could, uh, to give him an idea and, uh, and basically some on-the-job training about what to do, how to do, how to do it, and, uh, and when to do it which is even maybe more important than how to do it. So the in the ring training was followed up basically every night in the dressing room after the match. Uh, we sat down, the two of us, and we had these long sessions uh, of continued repeti- repetition about, uh, you know, uh, this and that, uh, the critiquing of the match. We talked about, uh, you know, uh, we talked about uh, making sure that the mistakes that he made were discussed. And, uh, and that he learned how to cure him, what to do to cure him. And along with that, uh, what could we have done better to have an even better match? Uh, and at this point in his career, I found uh, Terry to be a very good student of the sport. I mean, uh, he had a great attitude. And uh, after he left, you know, uh, as time went by, I mean, after he moved on to other territories and later on when he went to WWF and, uh, you know, to other territories, big territories, uh, he was smart. He created a lot of unique ways to get himself over that and I don't think I'd seen people do before. Uh, you know, the deal like where he would put his hand up to his ears and, and you know, uh, and get the audience to react, you know, uh, where he would flex his muscles after winning his matches. He would spend sometimes as more time flexing his muscles after it was over than the match lasted, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, he's yeah. pretty smart here. You know, yeah. he basically, he was letting the crowd do the work. They were the ones doing the work. Right, he was right. putting the hand up to his ear, <laughs> pumping the muscles a little bit, and they were doing all the reaction. And the, and the great part about it for him is uh, he didn't have to show them any great wrestling moves. <laughs> he was getting them to react were just stuff that nobody had ever done before. And, and I think that had a whole lot to do with his success. And I think it carried him, man. Uh, and it made him mm-hmm. different from most of the other wrestlers. And uh, for the rest of his career, I think he relied heavily 
on these basic little things that he kind of invented and created himself. Uh, so, uh, Arthur, uh, I think that's the first name was Arthur. Uh, uh, I, before we go here, man, uh, you know, and, and since you're from San Francisco, I got to tell you, I love your city, man. Uh, and, and I've been there many times, many, many times. Uh, uh, some of those times I went in my wrestling days, like the time I worked at Cow Palace. Uh, I went there uh, some of my some of the time in my hockey days. Once I got into hockey, and then Jason night in two thousand eight, I was even mm-hmm. there for an ADT national convention. Wow! In San Francisco, and uh, and I just uh, and I hope to go back again soon. And uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Damascus, uh, for a great question. Hey, listen, I'm curious about your West Coast days. We really haven't heard in all the years that we've been doing Stuckcast. We haven't heard much about you talking about wrestling on the West Coast, and you wrestled in the famous Cow Palace. So that's a story for for a day in the future in San Francisco. That's really cool. Listen, I don't know what to say, Ron. How can they just keep getting better? This has been another really great Studcast and a pleasure as always. So where are we writing next week? Well, crazy things, man, are happening in both these territories right now, it seems. Gulf Coast uh, is going to see the Hulk in his uh, first ever tag match uh, next next studcast uh, with Billy Spears, uh, you know, uh, and Billy Spears' other stars going to be the Hulk's partner, the Gladiator. Same guy that's been getting involved here on TV, got involved in the Mobile match, and, uh, and they're going to be in the ring with two Welches. Except the fans out there and the, down there in that territory don't know that I'm a Welch, but my partner is going to be Roy Lee, Roy Lee Welch. Me and Roy Lee are going to team up against the Hulk and the Gladiator. And uh, Spears are going to be adding even more talent. Uh, and we're going to find out, I think you mentioned it in this one, when I when you found out what Spears was doing here, mm-hmm. uh, putting uh, putting his, his team's uh, – uh, future at risk, you know, was there had to be a reason behind it. We're going to find out there's a reason behind it, right? That's what's another thing. Uh, Spears is increasing his 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 troop of guys, and uh, so this time uh, he's going to be in a massive team that he had been courting for months, that he had seen wrestle down there, and he he wanted them. And uh, that's why he was willing to take a chance on losing Tyler and Sullivan, because these guys are much, much bigger and much, much better. Uh, He was also putting together what he was going to call his family. And there there was going to be a cage match also in that next card down there in the southeastern Gulf Coast Mm -hmm. and then up in the Knoxville territory. Somebody in the next one is going to get tarred and feathered, man. And uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I mean, Bob Roop, this is crazy stuff, right? I mean, he's yeah. The, yeah, I've never seen this kind of stuff. I mean, and we just talked about in this this show some of the things he was doing that didn't make any sense. I mean, odd stuff. Yeah. So somebody's going to get tarred and feathered. Uh, Dick Slater's going to be coming back from Japan after he'd been sent to the hospital by Bob Roop eight weeks earlier, you know, and he'd gone to Japan. He's going to be returning. And we're going to take another close look again at all these odd things that were beginning to happen up there in the Knoxville territory, strange things. And then hopefully we'll be having another self, another learning tree question if we got the time. So.
Uh, I want to thank everybody, man, uh, uh, for joining us today. And I don't want to welcome all those new fans that are riding with us for the first time. Uh, cast is growing big time. And uh, thank all of y'all for your first ride. And please take care of yourselves and others. And, and may everybody out there have a wonderful Easter because it's that time of year. Yep. And I uh, hope you saddle up again next week. Hey, folks, you can keep up with the stud on Facebook and Twitter for everything that is happening in the studs world. Plus, check out TNstud.com, Southeastern Rewind on YouTube, and ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at David Summers Productions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.